Chapter 23 of Quarantine for the Weary, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a area of interest in the compliance world. I am Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and I'm joined as always by Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. In this episode, we take a look at six compliance events to watch in 2017. Uh, some of them are going to be uh, fairly uh, known, well known to you, and some are not. But we also put a different spin on some of those that are well known. We also take a short look at the attempt by the House of Representatives to abolish the Office of Congressional Ethics and their immediate reversal when uh, faced with an out- outroar of public opinion. And of course, tweets from President-elect. The episode comes in at uh, just around 25 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Welcome to the new year, Matt. Hello, Tom. It is good to be here, and a happy new year to all of our listeners. We've uh, got plenty we can keep on talking about. So this is a podcast where we try to take a deep dive into the weeds in some areas, and uh, fortunately for us, it looks like we will have no end of topics uh, with the current administration, given what's happened the first week in January. But uh, before we get to that, Matt, I wanted to visit with you in some depth about a blog post you wrote entitled, Six Compliance Events to Watch in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to, to go into each of these. Some of these we, we have touched on or talked about, but a couple of these I think are, are really, uh, if not new, certainly you put a new spin on them. So uh, why don't you uh, tell us about what you want to watch in 2017? Sure, yeah. I, I do these posts every year at the beginning of January, and I usually come up with five or six. Um, for the FCPA enthusiasts in our listening audience, and I know that's a lot of people, I had two in particular. Number one, I'm curious about the future of the FCPA pilot program, uh, which I am generally a fan of. I think it encourages a company to have a strong compliance program so you can take advantage of all of the the generosity that the SEC and Justice Department would then give you for cooperating and self-disclosing and whatnot. Um, I think that's a good thing, and I think when the pilot expires in April, I, number one, think it will be expanded, and number two, I think the Justice Department in particular will try and clone this idea, not just for FCPA issues, but for other types of misconduct. I know they've been looking at it for import-export controls and whatnot. Um, But if we see more and more Trump administration people talking about not punishing companies for misconduct, but do punish the individuals who are committing the misconduct. This feeds into that idea, um, you know, that you can give companies very generous terms if they cooperate with you and help point the finger at a culprit. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see something as, you know, far-reaching as like you automatically get no penalties if you meet the standards of the pilot program, which will now just go mainstream. We have a lot of deputies and assistants and section chiefs to be appointed before we get there, and we don't know who these people are, but I think that you know we might see something like that. Uh, my other big FCPA issue is the FCPA investigation into Walmart and whether we'll see a settlement in 2017. 
People who know me will say I have been calling for this since about 2013. And I wanted to stop you there because that seems to be an annual prediction, Matt. You know, and if I keep on doing it, eventually I'll be right. <laughs> and I just hope people will forget about all the wrong years. Um, but, you know, I was struck by all of these big, huge FCPA settlements at the end of 2016 with Tiva, with Oderbrecht, um, with uh, Zifox and all these others that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions. And I was thinking, well, where's Walmart? And it's not there. Um, this may be a case where Walmart's lawyers, I'm guessing, I have no basis in fact or knowledge here, but they may be thinking, let's push this into a Trump administration and see if we get more favorable resolution. Um, they probably will. They've done a lot to clean up their compliance program. A lot of the big bad stuff that we thought about five years ago turned out to be not that big and not that bad. Um, you know, they and I think that Jay Jorgensen, the head of compliance at Walmart, has done a great job in a very difficult, uh, complicated position that he has. Uh, so I'm curious to see, will they push that? And may that be a signal that maybe other companies on the brink of do we settle, do we not, or what kind of treatment might we get in the Trump administration? This could tell them. It will probably say a whole lot more if, anyways, Walmart gets nailed to the wall, uh, that business will continue as usual with FCPA enforcement. I don't think we're going to see that. Um, once upon a time, people said Walmart was going to pay more than a billion in fines. I'd die of shock if that happens this time around. Um, but who knows? Maybe I'll be wrong again, and we'll be talking about it in 2018, too. I'm not sure. But those are my big FCPA predictions. So let me let me backtrack a little on the pilot program, because we had an enforcement action at the end of 2016, the general cable enforcement action, mm -hmm. and it, it slid under uh, the wire, is coming in in 2016, but I think really it may have slid under the radar for many people, because it was preceded almost immediately by the Teva Pharmaceuticals and Odebrecht Brascom mega settlements. Yep. But in General Cable, the company got a 50% discount off of the um, minimum suggested fine range under the sentencing guidelines. And they had conduct which uh, was, was pretty horrific, or at least uh, they had actual knowledge and willful uh, indifference throughout the time frame and with multiple bribery schemes and multiple companies. Mm -hmm. And the lesson I really drew from that, Matt, is, is your point that you started with, which is the pilot program really has been a success. And I was a little skeptical, but I see real advantages to companies who follow the four requirements of self-disclosure, extensive cooperation, significant remediation, and profit disgorgement. And I think that that has really led companies to maybe taking a, another look at whether or not they want to self-disclose and making that because there, there are real benefits. And even if a new administration took it and expanded it along the lines of what the Chamber of Commerce wanted initially, which was a, a full uh, declination or pass if you met the requirements, if, if they're rigorous requirements which are evaluated uh, fairly um, by a group of Justice Department lawyers, I, I can certainly see your prediction of an expanded pilot program and a successful pilot program coming coming to the fore in 2017. I think so. It, it really it gets to what we keep on hearing 
from many Trump nominees right now is that they don't like the idea of corporate penalties, but they do want to hold individuals uh, guilty. And it fits in very nicely. Um, you know, I could I, I don't necessarily know that uh, I would go to the extreme of the U.S. chamber, which is a full declination. But I could certainly see something like you don't get any corporate penalties. Maybe you get some sort of you know, voluntary monitorship or, you know, a, no outside monitor being appointed except in egregious cases or something to that effect. But, you know, we're going to see a lot more carrot and a lot less stick in this regime. And that's kind of what the pilot program has been trying. Right. Yeah. So uh, you had some interesting thoughts on the uh, SEC Office of the Whistleblower as well. I do. And this is one where I am really curious about the fate of the Whistleblower's Office, which I think has really tried to shift its role, expand its role from just managing whistleblower rewards to establishing policies about whistleblower retaliation and protection. Um, you know, I think maybe a more accurate name for this office right now is the F SEC Office of Whistleblower Protection as opposed to just the whistleblower. Uh, will we continue to see the whistleblower office do more sort of punitive settlements like we've seen with this spate of pretaliation agreement punishments? Um, I'm in favor of these, uh, cam this campaign against pretaliation clauses. I think it's a no-brainer that companies can avoid this if they want. Uh, but really, it's not awarding whistleblower rewards. It is punishing companies for doing something that stifles whistleblowing. I don't know if a new whistleblower leadership uh, or new SEC leaders may or may not like that. And we also have to remember that if the SEC reduces its corporate penalties across the board, then the whistleblower rewards go down commensurately because they're just a percentage of what the SEC gets. And if the SEC stops imposing penalties, then you know you get 10 to 30 percent to zero. Um, so that could also have a big effect on what the whistleblower office does. Um, I don't know whether the current director, Jane Norberg, is going to stick around or not. She could certainly have a lucrative private sector career if she wanted. But that's one that weighs on my mind. So your next point was on the new uh, Public Counting o Oversight Board uh, chairperson. We've had Jim Doty since uh, 2011, mm -hmm. and uh, you really took a different, uh, not so much a different look at this, but really, I think people in compliance don't think about what the audit world means to them and the role of the PCAOB in internal audit and external audit and how that's really uh, can have some pretty significant implications for corporate America going forward. So uh, what are your really thoughts can. there? Yeah. So Jim Doty, who I have a, a good dose of respect for, I think he's done a very good job in a very difficult role. Uh, he is, first off, he is a lawyer by trade. So he is an outsider to the audit industry and is really imposed uh, tougher standards, more demanding standards, and stepped up inspection and enforcement against auditor misconduct or incompetence and infractions. Uh, he's done a good job there. And his term expired 15 or 16 months ago. He's been acting on an interim basis. The head of the SEC names the chair of the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. Sure, a new SEC chairman could reappoint Jim Doty to a second term, assuming Doty wants to stay. 
Um, or he could appoint uh, a very different sort of PCAOB chair who might have very different priorities about how to apply pressure and oversight to audit firms. And if the audit firm's pressures change, then their demands upon these companies might change, and particularly around internal control over financial reporting. Let's all put on our, our way back caps and remember that's how this profession started. Uh, once upon a time, it was mostly about accurate financial reporting, and then it evolved into bigger issues. Uh, but if we could see Section 404 of Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which requires audits of internal control over financial reporting, maybe it could stop to be enforced. Uh, maybe it could be enforced against large companies, but not against non-accelerated filers. We don't know. But that could have a really big change in the day-to-day -day world of a lot of what compliance is and a lot of what your technology systems and your accounting processes are. Uh, or at the very least, companies might be able to have more productive fights with their audit firms over what they should or shouldn't do. So this is one of those secondary issues that you could suddenly wake up and say, whoa, where did this come from? This is where it came from. This is, you know, Who's going to lead this agency? And we don't know that. Then you move to uh, an area that uh, may be a little bit different, but uh, really two areas. But I did want to highlight them because you thought they were significant enough here to, to put in. And the first is the fate of new overtime rules. And then you switch over to the Barclays trial. So uh, why don't you tell us um, why the compliance professional should be taking a look at these issues? I think because both of these issues in different ways, I'll talk about them specifically in a moment, but both of them get to how might the Trump administration decide to enforce new regulations or corporate misconduct? Like, you know, when these things go to court, what's the Trump administration going to do? A lot of these issues, you know, the Trump administration might just decide we're not going to enforce them. In the executive branch, that's the prerogative of the executive. Uh, the overtime rules in particular, these really kind of hamstring corporate compliance officers who have spent most of 2016 reviewing wage and hour policies, wage and hour procedures, worker classification, all that boring quasi-HR stuff, which actually is a big part of what compliance officers need to worry about, like from a training and policy and procedure perspective. These expanded overtime rules the Obama administration wanted were supposed to go into effect on December 1st. A federal judge in Texas suspended them nationwide just before Thanksgiving, and the Justice, the I'm sorry, the Obama Labor Department has appealed that ruling to see if these overtime rules could go forward. Well, come January 20th, Trump administration lawyers will be in charge, and their Labor Department uh, leaders could just say, "We're not going to enforce this. You know, we're not going to further the appeal. We're we're okay with these laws being struck down." Uh, and then all the overtime compliance work you did last year is essentially unnecessary. But who's going to be the one to tell all these employees you're not going to get that pay raise, you're not going to get that change in status, you know, we are going to revert you back to being a, an exempt or a non-exempt or whatever sort of a worker. That's going to be awkward. And so this really is a no-win scenario for compliance officers that either you're going to have to go through with these overtime rules just cosmetically for good labor relations, or you're going to have to go through with them because the Trump administration is going to enforce them too. We don't know what that answer is, but what the Labor Department does on January 21st with this case and whether they'll appeal, 
that sends a big signal about other things that you know other agent other outside groups might try to litigate other regulations and then the labor department would just say we're not going to fight it we agree and a lot of these things might go by the wayside we don't know but the overtime rules are one case the barclays trial so same sort of dynamic but now more on the uh, enforcement in the justice department uh barclays was one of the big banks under pressure to settle securities fraud related to the mortgage fraud um, way back in the financial crisis, selling mortgage-backed securities to investors with faulty disclosures and whatnot. Uh, Credit Suisse settled for several billion dollars, and Deutsche Bank settled for several billion dollars, both of them on December 22nd. And Barclays said, no, we're not going to settle. We don't think you, the Justice Department has a case. We're going go to go ahead and go to trial. So the department went ahead and filed a lawsuit against Barclays. Normally, that would be a big deal. But if new Trump administration Justice Department lawyers come in and say, we're not going to litigate this case anymore, or we're going to litigate, but we're not going to seek any monetary penalties, we're, you know, we're going to sue you for $1, then Barclays' recalcitrance here will not seem like it was being a stick in the mud. It will seem like really sharp thinking saved itself billions of dollars. Uh, and then you have to wonder, like, what is the Justice Department under Trump? You know, what is it going to actually enforce? We've got no idea. Um, so those are two cases where it really gets a sense of, you know, how much is the Trump Department really going to put its shoulder behind pushing companies uh, that are charged with misconduct? Maybe it's not going to at all. We've got no idea. We need early test cases. These are them. Well, the decision by Barclays to, to go ahead and fight this was certainly contra to every other financial institution around the mortgage fraud uh, relating to the um, financial crisis. Mm-hmm. The uh, thing that um, I really wonder about is politically, will Trump continue to have any sort of populist vein which would suggest prosecuting banks around uh, the 2008 financial crisis? Or uh, will Jeff Sessions really take the lead as the attorney general and make the decisions on the priorities that he will have for enforcement and perhaps deciding that something that happened now eight years ago is really not uh, something the DOJ is going to concern itself with going forward? That's exactly right. Um, We don't know. I think it's an excellent point you raise about Donald Trump and uh, the specter of political risk now that you know, your company's going to wake up the victim of another Donald Trump tweet some morning and you don't know what's going to happen or if it's serious or not. This is the sort of thing I would normally expect out of, you know, Venezuela or South Africa or some, you know, other emerging market. Uh, these rather arbitrary sort of uh, executive branch impulses. And I don't think we're going to see it across the administration. I think we're going to see it with the guy who sits at the desk at the Oval Office, and we don't know how serious he is or what he's going to do. Um, I, we've got no good answers, and we're just going to have to wait and see how that unfolds this year. Well, Matt, we're recording this on January 4th, and you are the first person I've talked to on a podcast about the um, brouhaha yesterday that the House of Representatives granted to us when they abolished the Office of Congressional Ethics and then reinstated it on the same day. So perhaps Mm -hmm. we could uh, share a few thoughts on uh, what's going on with that. 
Uh, this is just probably the biggest unforced error I've seen in Washington politics in a while. Uh, I mean, good, good Lord, this was so dumb. And in a, regardless of political affiliations people listening may or may not have, here's the thing about what the House was trying to do. If your board of directors proposed weakening the ethics and compliance function at your company the same way the House did, you would say that's wrong. You would say it violates sentencing guidelines, and you would think, I got to get my resume up on LinkedIn. It was just, it, it would, this would not fly in the private sector. Um, but, you know, that aside, my, I think my lesson that I see from all this is that Republicans are still much more politically weak than people care to realize. They only have power if they move all the levers of power at the same time in the same direction to do the same things. And that's really hard for the, you know, the, the clown car act that was otherwise known as the house yesterday with this ridiculous move to gut the uh, congressional ethics office. I think that um, people forget that the Republicans will only be able to exercise power when they are all in agreement. Democrats will be able to disrupt that when they get any single Republican or small amount of them to disagree, which is what happened yesterday. Sometimes it might be Donald Trump. Sometimes it might be three senators. Sometimes it might be some faction in the House of Representatives. But, you know, their grasp on power is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Very different than what we saw with Obama, where he had extensive power within the executive branch, didn't have any power anywhere else. That was a mile, you know, a mile deep, but an inch wide. So that, that's my big takeaway here is that you know, th these guys forget that they don't have a plan. We're going to see this on tax reform, health care, trade, dealing with Russia, just a whole lot of confusion that needs to be smoothed over. And I don't know how good they're going to be at doing that. Well, uh, we will certainly have to uh, continue to watch this space. Now, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time again. But as always, it's been a, uh, a great uh, chance to visit with you and go into the weeds. So I was wondering if anyone wanted to get in touch with you. Could you give them your email address? Yeah, sure. It is M. Kelly, spelled K-E-L-L-Y, the Irish way. Uh, M. Kelly at RadicalCompliance.com. And drop me an email. I would love to hear anybody else's ideas of what to watch in 2017. Or certainly feel free to, to give it to me if you think I'm off base about what's going on in Congress, which is certainly a collection of random impulses down there. So who knows how right or wrong we all are. Well, Matt, we'll look forward to your 2018 prognostications for a Walmart settlement. <laughs> thank you very much, Tom. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance into the Weeds. I have two requests of you, if I could make them for the uh, early 2017. The first is if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us. It would help in our rankings. The second thing is Matt and I are formulating a mailbag episode and so if you have any questions that you'd like a deep dive on into uh, uh, GRC compliance or any of the topics that we hit on this podcast please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or matt kelly at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com this is tom fox i'd like to thank you once again for listening to this episode of compliance into the weeds This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.